This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. That's right, 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, shares of the generic pharmaceutical maker Teva, they are rallying big time. This after the company maintained its profit projections for the year as quarterly sales of drugs, including respiratory products, rose during the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's get into the quarter and the outlook and talk about the virus impact on the pharmaceutical industry. Cor Schultz is president and CEO of Teva Pharmaceutical, joining us on the phone from Amsterdam. Um, Cor, so nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Tell us a little bit about the quarter, what drove earnings, uh, and what the outlook looks like. Uh, we're really curious about visibility for all kinds of companies right now. Yeah, very nice to be with you. So uh, we had a first quarter where we were, of course, very focused on the uh, challenges from COVID-19. So uh, we're quite proud that we managed to keep our extensive manufacturing uh, operation uh, fully operational. All our facilities are open. We managed to keep them very safe for our employees. And by keeping them operational, we were able to serve the 200 million patients we serve every day. We are the largest volume manufacturer of pharmaceuticals in the world. We are the largest supplier of medicines for for the U.S. So it's a key importance that we stay operational, and uh, we're very happy we were able to do that. that. So by doing so, we uh, managed to maintain our normal business, and we are, as you know, in a, you could say, getting out of a turnaround mode where we had to cut costs dramatically and where we had to also prune our portfolios but, but now we've turned the corner and we're starting to see growth in our underlying business. We did also see some extra demand for uh, generics and OTC products, not so much in the U.S., but more in Europe in the first quarter. And so, Core, given the the size and scope that you just laid out of your global operations, I do wonder where, if any place, have you seen or or do you expect to see any supply chain disruptions? Because Every company, it feels like, is at least facing the threat of that. I wonder what's happened with you guys. Yeah, so we have, we have a very wide network of manufacturing. We have a lot of manufacturing in the U.S. We have a lot of manufacturing in Europe. So, uh, so we did see a lot of challenges, of course. And uh, I'll, I'll just mention a few of them. One is, you know, creating a healthy work environment where people can, essential people who do critical things like manufacturing, Mm -hmm. where they can still come to work and feel safe and you avoid having any outbreaks of of disease in in your factories and so on. We managed to do that to keep it very uh, safe. But you also have the problems of absenteeism when people cannot have their kids in school and all and transportation shuts down. How do you ensure you get your people to work? So we managed to overcome that. Then we have a lot of worries about uh, supplies, API supplies, you know, from China, from India, and so on. We managed to overcome that. We had lots of challenges on logistics. When all passenger jets stopped, then what you don't realize is there's a lot of air cargo in, in these planes, and there's a lot of pharmaceutical products that are being flown around the world to, you know, keep the supply chain going. And that stopped from, like, one day to another, really, with all the airlines stopping to, to move products. So we had to change our logistics there. So I would say uh, really, really many challenges, also governments closing borders, making export restrictions and so on. But I would say throughout working with all the different governments, throughout 
the strong dedication of our people in all the factories and in supply chain. We managed to keep it rolling, and we are very proud about that. How many of those changes that you had to make do you think are permanent when it comes to the supply chain, and are they more expensive? How do you quantify this going forward? Yeah, so uh, you could say on, on the manufacturing operations in each factory, there's, of course, some cost elements, but they're not dramatic. I would say, you know, more precautions with how you sanitize and how you clean and how you operate and so on. So, so those precautions you can actually keep in place if you want to, even if COVID-19 goes away. The transportation cost has gone up uh, temporarily. I think once uh, we get some more airplanes in the air again, they will probably normalize again. And, of course, we've also been moving things to uh, sea transportation instead of, instead of airplanes to the extent it was possible. So, so I think that there will be some changes. Uh, there will also be changes in how we do promotional activities. We're doing a lot more e-detailing now where our you know, experts talk to doctors and healthcare professionals using the same kind of media as internet-based communication and so on. So there will be some changes in the industry, um, and there will also be potentially some political uh, mm -hmm. decisions to be made by governments. You understand the pharmaceutical industry and obviously play big time in the generic world, but I do wonder when you hear some of the conversations about the creation of a vaccine, uh, you know, by the end of this year, we've talked to a lot in the medical community and, and then not only creating it, but then ramping it up so that the billions of people around the world can tap into it, which many say you've got to have a vaccine in order for global economies to really get back to normal. How do you see it? What, what do you see as the realistic view on all of this? So first, I want to say that I'm, I'm not a scientist. You know, I, I'm a business person by education, an economist by education. But of course, I've been in the industry 30 years. And Teva is not a vaccine company. We are, we are not really manufacturing vaccines or developing vaccines. But I would say one thing I've learned in pharmaceuticals is that uh, clinical data and the quality of clinical data is paramount and patient safety is paramount. So it's very difficult to develop a new drug or a new vaccine extraordinarily fast without compromising the quality or, or the safety of the drug or the vaccine. So I, I'm optimistic it can be done, but I'm not optimistic about these very short timelines you hear about because I don't think it's really realistic uh, given that you have to live up to you know, patient safety and quality requirements. So, Cor, hydroxychloroquine, we've all learned to say it uh, here in the journalist world uh, a little bit because we've heard the president of the United States talk about it. It's something that I believe you've been donating to, to U.S. hospitals. Are you going to continue to ramp up that supply and make those donations despite the fact that there's some risk uh, around that? Help us understand that side of the story. Yeah, you could say, as I said, uh, you know, I'm not a real scientist sure. in the sense that I'm, I'm managing uh, Teva Pharmaceuticals. But, of course, I know a lot about this story. I think I basically read the same things that, that you might have read because we don't have any insight into the potential effects on hydroxychloroquine on COVID-19. <clears throat> we haven't done any trials. And uh, it's quite uh, clear, of course, that at the, um, at the present time we don't have any definitive answers as to whether it works or not. We have only been responding to uh, demands coming from, uh, from various governments, and uh, we had the possibility to uh, re respond very fast because we've been producing this product for many, many years. It's being used by patients uh, to treat lupus in the United States, 
and therefore we had an inventory of the product. And when we had the request, we, uh, you know, of course, responded positively. But you could say we are not taking the clinical decisions about whether well, to use the product or not. Well, Core, how much has demand ramped up for it? As you said, you know the normal flows in terms of demand um, for hydro um, hydroxychloroquine. See, I'm still <laughs> learning how to pronounce it. They need to come up with a little abbreviation. But you know the normal demand. How much did it ramp up the demand as we as we move through this crisis? So it's difficult to say because actually what happened was that. We made a major donation to um, to United States government. Mm-hmm. Some of that went to different states. Mm-hmm. Uh, other companies also uh, made donations. So that kind of probably covered the the demand for several months. Uh, if you do a normal calculation on the, on on the population that you might treat, so therefore it's really difficult for me to assess because I have no insight into to what level these products have been actually used. We have shipped them, of course, but whether they have been used in hospitals around the country or not, uh, I simply don't know. So your demand that coming out of you beyond sending it to other facilities, nothing has changed? You haven't seen incredible demand from some of your global sources? No, we, we've not seen. I mean, we, we saw uh, a demand for, for donations, which we okay. met immediately in the U.S. because we wanted to respond the best we could. And I know that other companies did the same. There's like 10 or 12 companies worldwide that makes hydroxychloroquine, so mm. we're not the only ones. So, so my guess is that the initial donations will have covered whatever demand, uh, you know, would be there for the, for the first couple of months. And so when you think about sort of beyond this disease, which obviously all of us are talking about all the time, what are the ripple effects across the rest of your business when it comes to demand? I mean, we're talking to hospitals all the time about, you know, elective surgeries being postponed, about people being afraid to go into hospitals. I wonder how that plays into your business in terms of demand. Yeah, you say short term, it doesn't really, uh, uh, has not affected us. But of course, uh, if we if we look longer term, then I can just give you some examples because we do you know more than twenty thousand different products. So of course, we have many. But let sure. me give you two examples. One example uh, where we see I think sustainable higher demand that's in uh, respiratory diseases, and and that's for a simple reason that normally hospitals, when people came in with a respiratory disease, depending on which one it was, they would use a nebulizer and give them whatever drug they they needed. But these days, due to the risk of passing on disease by you know, sharing nebulizers and having the whole challenge of using common equipment, it's been uh, the common standard that you use these personal inhalers, uh, the small devices mm-hmm. that people normally carry around. So the hospital demand has switched onto that. Now, that is probably a permanent situation. I also think that uh, due to the fact that this is very much a respiratory disease, we will see people have better adherence to their therapy if they suffer from asthma and so on. So there you could say there you have a situation with with probably a long-term higher demand. Then you have an area such as oncology, and uh, it's quite clear that the visits to oncology departments and hospitals, the visits to oncology centers, has been clinics has been dropping as a consequence of the lockdown. Now, people don't get less cancer because we have this lockdown. So hopefully, once things normalize, the people who need therapy will will get back into treatment. But but there we're seeing, I think, now a uh, moderation on the demand for oncology products. So that's just an example of yeah. two areas where you see some changes. Hopefully, when we get out of the lockdown situation, 
people will get back in there and people who have cancer will get treated to the same level that they were treated before because that's, of course, the best thing for the patients. Yeah, absolutely. I was just listening to a podcast this morning just about, you know, individuals who are just afraid to go to the hospitals right now for non-COVID-related illnesses because they're concerned about getting the virus. One thing I have to ask you, um, Court, and your stock is soaring. It's up this year, but it has seen overhang and pressure certainly in 2019 and the year before concerns about the potential legal settlement uh, regarding your company's role in the U.S. opioid epidemic. Uh, And I am curious, I know a settlement has been talked about, but it's not been finalized. Do you, what are your expectations and how has the crisis impacted your expectations around timing and sizing of the opioid litigation fines, if at all? Yeah, very good question. So you're absolutely right. We had a framework agreement with uh, the AGs uh, last year, at the end of last year. We've been working on finalizing that. Uh, We've been making good progress on the practicalities. We're going to donate a lot of product that will be helpful for people to wean them off uh, the products they're misusing. But we've seen a a slowdown in the process, not due to any negative uh, attitude from anybody, Mm -hmm. but I think due to the fact that when you have these kind of uh, framework settlements and you need to get over the finishing line, so to speak, with the final wording and the final details, it's good to have something that puts pressure on both sides because otherwise, you know, uh, the lawyers can keep on going. That's the way lawyers normally work. So uh, you need something to say, okay, now's the time to get it done. We were expecting that the first state trial in New York would that be that event, but that trial has been postponed due to COVID-19 and a new trial date has not been set. So uh, I'm still optimistic that we will see uh, a firm settlement. I think it should be done before that new trial date that we don't know right now. I think that the COVID-19 situation probably have taught people that in order to help uh, solve major health problems, such as the misuse of uh, opium substances or fentanyl and, and all the other substances that are being misused, in the U.S., in order to solve a problem like that, you need to collaborate and take action and do something. And that's what the whole settlement is about. And it's better for society to come together and do something to help the American public rather than have, you know, hundreds of trials over the next 10 years where somebody gets some money. Right, and ultimately... Yeah, and right, and get it out to those who need it. Uh, the settlement, it's still $250 million in cash, $23 billion worth of drugs used to treat addiction. Is that what you expect will ultimately be agreed to, or or do you see something different at this point? No, that's, that's, uh, that's what we're expecting. That's the framework that we entered into, and, and that's what we, we've been working hard to figure out all the logistical details with the AGs and figuring out how would we exactly do it, when would we start, how would we be executed, because it's over a 10-year period, of course, mm-hmm. that we will be supplying the product. And, uh, and, and we're, we're making uh, good progress there, but, of course, we still need to, to get the final settlement done. And we also, as you know, this is a situation where we, together with three big distributors and Johnson & Johnson, had this negotiation with the AGs. So it's also all five of us, we sort of have to come together and, and agree with the with the AGs. So, Cor, final question for you. You know, so many things feel like they're going to change. We talked about some of the things that are changing in your business. When you visited us in your studio just a few months ago, it seems like forever ago. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we talked a little bit about 
drug pricing. And I do wonder, you know, amid all of this, amid all the discussion about healthcare and pharmaceuticals and vaccines and serologics and serologicals and therapeutics, does pricing change going forward, especially when it comes to the gen- generic landscape? It's a, it's a very good question, and it's an open question, because you could say uh, there is one uh, element that could stabilize the pricing, uh, and that is if the, um, you could say the consideration for stable supply to patients, the consideration for having uh, security of supply, if that starts to play a, a higher role so that it's just not the rock-bottom price that's the most important, then that would lead to, you know, more uh, commitments on supplies, which would be wonderful for us because we have the world's biggest supply network. But it would, of course, come at a slightly higher price. Generics are very, very cheap, as you know. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not where you really have any pricing problems in the U.S. Uh, so, so there is a chance that the buyers will value stability of supply higher and quality of supply higher, and that could lead to a stabilization. I don't really think that you will see prices go up dramatically in nothing right. like that, right. but, but it could lead to a stabilization. If you keep on going for the cheapest product you can get out of China or India, then, of course, you will see prices still going down, but then you will also see the buyers running a bigger risk on behalf of the patients. All right, right. we'll leave it on that note. Hey, Cor, thank you so much. Appreciate uh, this chunk of time uh, that you've given us. Cor Schultz, he is president and CEO at Teva Pharmaceutical, joining us on the phone from Amsterdam, as we mentioned. They did come out with their latest quarterly update, and the stock is soaring in today's trading session. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, let's talk about one of the must-reads in the magazine this week. It is not for the faint of heart, but you need to read it. You need to understand what's going on uh, out there, Carol, because it has to do with the meat industry, something we've been watching very closely, so many people watching it closely, including the president. We get inside this business. Peter Waldman, he wrote the story, Projects and Investigations Reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from San Francisco, as does Joel Weber. He, of course, is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's on the phone from Brooklyn. Joel, this was a tough story. Yeah, that was right. And um, one that I think um, Peter and his um, co-authors really brought um, just some wonderful material to. I mean, this is a frightening topic, right? And you think about meatpacking in the U.S. Um, these are very vulnerable workers. The history of meatpacking in the U.S. is also sort of, sort of a tortured one going back to obviously the jungle way back when. Um, but what, what really um, came to light in this reporting is that the the workers have really not been protected. Um, and that's actually led to basically meat shortages because of the lack of ability to process. And it's all really, really frightening. Um, I don't even know which anecdote is more frightening to, yeah. to give you to start with. Peter, what, which one's the most frightening that you found in your reporting? Well, basically the indifference. I mean, in March, when all of us were running to our shelters, the meat processing plants were obviously continuing to run to provide food for the country, but we're not making any amends, really very few changes to protect workers, and the numbers just exploded. So by April, we were seeing hundreds and hundreds of thousands, and ultimately the CDC now says 5,000 meatpacking workers came down with the disease, at least 20 dead, but we can expect 
several more than that. I got to tell you, Peter, I don't even know where to point the blame to, and I feel like to a lot of a lot of individuals or a lot of institutions, you tell a tale, and it just kind of breaks our heart. Um, you talk about Raphael Benjamin. Um, just briefly, just tell us about his experience, because we all, as you said, when we were all shutting down and sheltering in our homes and staying safe, these meat workers and meat processing workers doesn't, doesn't look like they had much choice. So Raphael Benjamin uh, was 64 years old. He is so prototypical that he's almost a, a writer's dream. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that. I mean, his yeah. case uh, fit so many facts we were looking at, um, and ultimately he died. And um, that allowed us to write about him, because I will tell you, we did 32 worker interviews for this article. So we really got into that plan and spoke to people uh, on the phone. <laughs> and, uh, and not a single one of them wanted to use their name because, as Joel said, these are very vulnerable workers and they could easily and would probably have been fired if quoted by name in the media. Um, and so what happened was, in the middle of our reporting, uh, we heard about this 17-year veteran of the Cargill plant in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, uh, who lost his life from COVID-19. And using internet resources to find phone numbers, I tracked down his son, um, uh, an active duty soldier in his 30s, who's based in Georgia uh, at a cybersecurity site for the U.S. Army. And um, he told me the story. Basically, Raphael Benjamin um, had been working all these years, looking forward to retiring his uh, pension anniversary to top up his pension before retiring uh, would have been April 10th. Mm. Uh, he ended up spending that day on a ventilator in the ICU, um, having contracted COVID-19 while working. Uh, and um, a few more quick facts about how he did that. Uh, he did report to work and told, told the nurses when they were screening in early April that he wasn't feeling well and had a dry cough, but his fever didn't hit the 100.4 trigger, so they waved him through and he went to work. Um, in addition to that, he had previously, a week earlier in March, uh, been given a mask by his daughter, and she said, wear this, Daddy, it'll help you uh, against this virus. So he was trying to wear it but was told by a supervisor he could not because mm. it would scare other people. Uh, it's just frightening stuff. Um, but, you know, Peter, I have a, a sort of a bigger question, which is obviously this is happening in the U.S., and it seems to be happening here with great frequency. Why is it happening here and not in other countries and around the world, which is, you know, obviously have their own meatpacking facility? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it goes to the question of can we resolve this so that our workers are safe and we'll have plenty of meat because the answer to your question joel is the answer to that one um so in europe they are not having the same extent of problem they have obviously um stiffer working laws in most eu countries so excuse me stiffer labor protection laws um so they're more on guard to protect their workers. They also tend to have smaller meatpacking plants. We have enormous ones that employ up to 5,000 people in three shifts, uh, and it, things are much harder to control in plants like that. Um, and um, they have more automation. So those three factors um, have led to, you know, no, no plant
have shutdowns in Europe from this cause. So it can be done. Uh, and I will say there are companies now that have adapted. I mean, this is kind of before and after story. As I said, in March, numbers exploded while those of us were sheltering. Those people were working and the companies were treating them as business as usual. And right. let's face it, we don't always get treated very well. Uh, and now you know, when companies have adapted. One thing that, that um, brings to mind, Peter, is that obviously the facilities that we're kind of talking about in this article are predominantly, you know, pork and, and uh, to some extent beef. The the one that is sort of an outlier here is actually the chicken industry, right, which is, tends to have more distance between people and automation, right? More so, but, for example, Tyson has had problems in Georgia. Um, there are chicken plants that have had issues uh, I don't think they have the scale we've seen, especially in pork and also in beef. Um, part of that may be I don't – I'm not aware of chicken processing plants that are as large as these others, so they could be a, could be a scale issue. But they're not untouched, especially Tyson. And, and automation, does it, does it ultimately change this dramatically? Only got about 30 seconds here. Yeah, I mean, in May, um, I can't tell you I'm an expert in that. I can tell you all the experts are saying this will only accelerate the move to automation. And as a story closes on the note of saying, you know, it used to be about coffee breaks in terms of getting a robot, but now it's about robots not getting coronavirus. Yeah. Well, it, it's an amazing story. Congratulations on it. Peter Waldman, thank you so much. Joel Weber, our thanks to you as well. For those of you listening in New York, D.C., San Francisco, watching on YouTube, Bloomberg Business Week continues right here. If you're listening on 1061 in Boston, Bay State Business is next. I do wonder how much automation comes into play in a lot of different industries, just like we talked with Christina yeah. Sotis at the Pittsburgh International Airport. I do wonder how much of that starts to play into our economy. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, back with us for a daily look at the health crisis caused by the virus is Dr. Amish Adalja, an infectious disease physician at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, on the phone from Pittsburgh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, and of course, Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Dr. Adalja, nice to have you here with us. Um, a lot going on. We he heard U.S. House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi talking a lot about the importance of testing and tracing. Tell us where we are in this process and what you think is the most important thing that uh, our audience needs to be focusing on right now. Testing and tracing are going to be the way we move forward in a new reality with this pandemic virus among, among us. It didn't go anywhere during this time of social distancing. And now the question is, how do we minimize the risk from this, minimize the disruption that this virus poses to us? And the only way that we can preserve hospital capacity and not have things spiral and out of control like they did in March, some hot spots around the country, is to have a robust system where people can be tested uh, at, the, at the will of their doctor without really any kind of hassle or worrying about supplies. And then also that we can find their contacts and trace their contacts through, through our local health departments. And this is something that is kind of a patchwork across the country. And it's going to be something that every 
part of the world, every part of this country is going to have to try and augment and make sure that their health departments are resourced. And it's going to be challenging, and some states are going to be better at it than others. So we will see differences across the country. Right. And we often see it in terms of the number of cases across the country. Right now, a headline crossing the Bloomberg, Florida, COVID-19 cases rising 2.2% to 38,828. So Dr. Dalja, you said we need a robust system of testing. We don't really have that. As you said, it's a patchwork. How do we get there? Is it difficult to ramp it up so that everybody is tested and we have a better framework um, for what's going on with the virus? We're definitely getting better at testing. I can just say, even from my personal experience over the last several weeks, it's gotten much, much better. And many states are in an okay shape for the ability to test. The challenge is going to be contact tracing. And that's because our, our local health departments and our state health departments are often neglected. They're not considered priorities by the government. And they're often spread very thin over many different health threats and kind of have moved away from a lot of their core work in infectious diseases for which they really were instituted a long, long time ago. And we're going to have to give those health departments the flexibility and the ability to cut through bureaucracy and red tape and hire contact tracers. Maybe they hire people whose jobs were were deemed non-essential. Maybe they they train people very quickly. Uh, And and we're seeing that, actually. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is actually doing that for, for New York State. So there are innovative ways to do this. And I think it is something that can be doable. It's just we just have to have the political will and empower the health departments the way they should have been empowered a long time ago. Right. And uh, as we mentioned at the top, uh, Mike Bloomberg, of course, the owner of this radio station as well. So, Dr. Adalja, I would love for you to help us figure out something that that I've been talking to my family about and we've been talking about a lot on this show, which is, you know, this patchwork that you describe and that's such a great word for it across the country. There's also just this unevenness, it feels like, as we look across not just where the virus has spiked in terms of cases and in terms of deaths, uh, but also the and largely this is connected to the to the former point this patchwork of reopening strategies. So what's the right way to proceed at this point? And I think it's especially relevant to us here in the tri-state area because we're still in the thick of this, and yet we see a very different picture across the country. You have to remember that a pandemic doesn't occur synchronously, that there's going to be heterogeneity around the country and around the world. And the best way to think about when you can lift social distancing is going to be driven by regional data, meaning what are the dynamics of this virus in your region? What is the local hospital capacity? What is the local health department's ability to do contact tracing? All of that is really going to be different across the country. And this is something we see all the time with any kind of um, any kind of public health emergency. Some places are in better positions than other places. And the hot spots like the tri-state area around New York City definitely got hit early and have a hospital capacity problem even on good days because those hospitals are often crowded, and we've had hospitals getting shut down, for example, in the New York City area over the last several years. So they're going to have a much higher threshold before you lift it. But there are places that were relatively spared, that have made changes to their hospital capacity, that have secured personal protective equipment, diagnostic testing, and have resourced their health departments so that they can deal with the the new number of cases that they're going to get as social distancing is removed those restrictions are removed so it's it is going to be something that is a bit of a patchwork and you may see people tightening in certain areas and loosening in certain areas as we get through this but i think that's going to be what we have to to get used to because it's not one big outbreak it's it's many small outbreaks all around the country so that we've just got about 40 seconds here so in terms of that patchwork i mean some areas obviously can open up but it sounds like we can open up if done carefully 
Exactly. Uh, the question is not that we, you know, do we open up? We are going to open up. And there's a way to do this in a safe manner by keeping an eye on hospital capacity because we know we're going to get more cases and more deaths as we increase our social interactions with each other. The question is, can we keep that to a pace that's manageable by the hospital so they don't go into crisis? And that's why things are going to have to be titrated, where you're constantly looking to see what your hospital capacity is. And, and that's, I think, the best way to do it is to do it in that manner. And so what's your best advice for our listeners if we are in a hot spot, uh, speaking very parochially, uh, like we are here in the tri-state area? How should we be sort of living our lives, especially in these places of higher infection? The virus isn't going away. So you have to really think about what risk tolerance you have and try to find a way to be as mindful as you can about this virus and, and limit your exposure as best as you can while also living your life, because this is going to be something that we're going to deal with for the next one to two years until there's a vaccine. So we have to come up with a better way of doing this than economic shutdowns for until we have a vaccine. So, okay, and we've been talking about this a lot because we're trying to understand our world, certainly here in New York City, as, as Jason said, we get parochial about this. But I mean, how do we get on a subway? You really have to look at the risk that you're, you're, that you're facing, what risk tolerance you have, and then just take a lot of common sense types of measures that you can. Wash your hands a lot. Don't touch your face. Try and social distance as best as you can. And there are, and nothing is going to be risk-free. I mean, this, this, there's no way to make this virus go away, and there's no way to drive the number of cases down to zero. This is going to be something that we have to cope with, and it's going to be different, difficult, and it's a horrible choice that we face, but this is the, the situation we're left in. And until there's a vaccine, we're going to have to take risk when we, when we leave the house, and, and that's something that we have to get used to doing. So we need to understand that. And we have heard this certainly from the president and others that there will be lives lost as we reopen, unfortunately, because we do need to reopen the economy. Is that basically the point? Yes, the virus hasn't changed its behavior. It is still going to infect people. Some of those people are going to get hospitalized. Some of them are going to die. That's something that we're going to to have to, to cope with. And it's a horrible choice because this virus got out of control. But it's nonetheless a choice that we have. And and the question is, how, how, can we, how can we move forward? with? And we have to be cognizant of the costs of the economic shutdown because that leads to decreased screenings for colonoscopies, decreased cervical cancer screening, decreased breast cancer screening, delays in chemotherapy. All kinds of things are happening because of the shutdown, which is going to have a cost. In the economy, at, at, basic, at a basic level, is people's lives, and people need to produce to live. And I think that, that this is this, this uh, balance that we have to have. And, and it's going to be something that, that's going to be difficult, that society is going to have to have a decision, a discussion about. And, and there's no easy answers. It's not black or white. It's all gray. Yeah, it's as we've continued to say, it's so, so complicated. And you really took us in some other areas, especially about the medical cost, not because of the virus directly, but yeah. by not doing cancer screenings or colonoscopies, there will be a medical cost for that as well. And people will be impacted. Uh, Dr. Uh, Amesh Adalja, thank you so much. Infectious disease physician at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh, as we mentioned earlier, of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, we've just got about 10 minutes or so left in today's trading session. We welcome back as we drive to the close. Tom Plum, he's president and chief investment officer at Plum Funds based in Madison, Wisconsin. On the phone, manager of the Plum Balance Fund, as we like to point out, it is in the 99th 
percentile for the past five years, meaning it beats just about all of it. The other category, or the other funds, I should say, all its peers in that category, returning on average annually nearly 8%. So, Tom, welcome back uh, to Bloomberg. Um, just checking in. You doing okay? Yeah, thank you. We're uh, safe and not quite sane here in Madison, Wisconsin, Carol. Yeah, I feel the same. Um, Well, it's good to have you back with us. Uh, You know, we love to talk to you because your fund does do so well and you really get down into names with us. Um, Give me some thoughts, though, about, you know, lots going on about where we are in the economy, how troubled it is, lack of visibility for companies. I'm just curious your macro thoughts and kind of where we go from here. You know, I I talk about it as the three C's. We've got a conundrum, and everybody looks around, and they see how bad the economy is, how it looks like it's not going to improve very quickly. There's a lot of discussion, I think, on your show about whether or not there's still a potential for a V-shaped recovery or if it's going to be longer term. And nobody has any real confidence in the, the economy and the forecasts that are out there because there's so many unknowns. But on the other hand, they look at the stock market, and the recovery, of course, has been pretty phenomenal from the lows in mid-March. And we believe that the reason is that, you know, basically stocks are like any other asset. If there's more buyers, there's more money flowing into it, uh, they're going to go up. And what we've had here is the government just flooding the world with cash, not only our government, but government all over the world. And as they basically are trying to eliminate or minimize the effect of cascading uh, liquidation system-wise that would basically violate or, or make the whole structure start to fall down. So what we've been seeing is that money's been flowing in, and um, we've, we believe the government's goal is to try to keep the structural integrity of the economy solid, believing that we will start to see an end to the pandemic uh, crisis stage and start to see some type of improvement by the summer or or maybe even not until the second or third quarter. Mm. So, Tom, where do you put your money right now? Who do you like in your portfolio either to sort of keep investing into or is there new money you're, you're putting to work in, in new names? Well, you know, uh, we're going to live with this, um, the virus. I think it's your last guess that there's not going to be a magic button and then all of a sudden we don't have these concerns. But everything that we've been seeing in this crisis just reinforces the secular trend that we've been seeing towards the digital economy. Uh, Basically, uh, information technology is the largest sector of the S&P 500, and uh, we believe it's still going to gain share of that pie as we go forward. You know, the um, old cliche, you know, is that uh, it's not a stock market, but it's a market of stocks. So as you were saying, Jason, there's still some companies that are doing relatively well today and will do significantly better as time goes by. And those are companies that basically are a part of this digital transactions, for example. Yeah. We've talked about it before. Visa, MasterCard, American Express, they're all joined at the hip with Amazon and PayPal. 
Right. And and in your portfolio, Visa, MasterCard among your top holdings, uh, Microsoft among your top holdings, Amazon atop your, uh, you know, uh, among your top holdings. Remind us about allocation. Is there a ceiling in terms of you'll sell just because you don't want too much of the portfolio to be in one name? And I am curious if you've been adding or subtracting from any names uh, in the last uh, few weeks or so. Sure. You know, um, uh, Dave Wilson, I know, has uh, every day some great uh, charts. That a few weeks ago, he talked about the large cap versus uh, the, uh, smaller Small cap growth companies yeah. or large cap growth versus value. And, um, you know, we just don't see that trend stopping right now. So um, the Microsoft, Amazon, Googles, uh, they're going to continue to be the strong, getting stronger. Um, so any time that we have an opportunity to add to these companies that are structurally uh, there, we'll add to them. Uh, we do keep, um, you know, we're a diversified fund, so we try not to have more than 5% in any one holding, and so occasionally we'll cut back just because, uh, you know, we don't want to be the, the group that's uh, so confident that they let their blinders keep them from the basic portfolio management discipline. That's why this is a balanced fund, right. uh, even though we obviously like stocks uh, more than bonds today. Tom, I, I know we've talked to you a, a fair amount about China before. Alibaba is still pretty prominent Ooh. in your portfolio. Does anything change given these increased tensions uh, here? Only about 30 seconds left, and that's a big question. But I do wonder how you look at China in this new world lens. Well, again, uh, the China, everything that they want to accomplish is to expand the domestic consumption segment of their economy. And Alibaba, as we've talked about before, Amazon on steroids, they're going to continue to be a domestic company in China. They're not that successful outside of China. Good but point. the growth opportunities within China are still going to be tremendous. Yeah. All right. Great to catch up with you, Tom Plum. We always look forward to it. We see you on our rundowns, mm. and Carol and I both just sort of rub our hands together like, oh, we can't wait to have him back. And it's because he does so well, and he tells the story so well. So we really uh, are grateful to Tom Plum, as always. The Plum Balance Fund, again, one of the best performers out there against its peers, Carol. Yeah, straight shooter, right? And we can talk about names and get into the specifics. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.